Well, thank you so much for the invitation. Um, I didn't feel like a, a leader back in those days and still said to Brian this morning, I, I still feel young and still don't feel like a leader, just a preacher. And I'm honored to be here. It surprises me again and again when people say, John Piper, come talk to us. I said, well, <laughs> I'd like to sit there and let you talk to me. But here I am, and so I'll do my best to uh, talk about this theme, uh, about the supremacy and sweetness of God in in the ministry of preaching. And I hope that as we go along during the day, at least at the end, perhaps, there'll be some time for for some give and take. So I'd like to just pray and ask for God's help for me and for you as you listen. So let's bow and, and ask the Lord's help. Father in heaven, I thank you so much for this place and the ministry here and Brian Stiller and his new call to this place in the last several years and for these brothers and sisters who are here to ponder these important matters. Oh, Lord God, grant, I pray, that you would come and that you would guard me from error, that you would put an anointing upon this work of Speaking that would be transforming and hope-giving and life-restoring and ministry-preserving and vision-enlarging and mission-mobilizing and heart-purifying and and things that I can't even imagine to hope that you would do exceedingly and abundantly beyond what I can think. So would you come? Don't let us invest this day in vain, Lord. Grant that your grace would be here and that according to the promise of 1 Corinthians 15, 58, nothing, nothing done in the name of the Lord will be done in vain. So may we abound in the work of the Lord now, the work of listening, the work of thinking, the work of dreaming, the work of speaking, the work of meditation and prayer and exegesis and reflection for the sake of your people, and for the sake of the nations. Through Christ I pray. Amen. Well, I don't know whether you have an outline of the day. Uh, I suppose you do. At least I had one of these little little things that told me what I'm talking about. And I'm glad it's accurate, because this is what I suggested we talk about. But you'll notice there that uh, um, the first one is, How Not to Blaspheme in the Pulpit, An Answer to Albert Einstein. Let me begin this way. Um, I have this theory about the way that the 20th century is going to relate to the uh, 21st century. And it's a wild-eyed theory, and uh, you can write it off as soon as I say it, because nothing that I say depends on its truth. And I'm not a prophet with any particular authority outside what's in the Bible, and this isn't in the Bible, and yet it will help make plain to you something that I think is so very, very needed. My my theory is that the 20th century, at least in the West, and at least in, say, the last half, you could call the century of the self. Or you could call it the psychological century, or you could call it the therapeutic century. There's a book written in 66 by Philip Reef, maybe you remember, called The Triumph of the therapeutic, 
Now, if that was true in 66, it's tenfold true today in the churches and in the world. The world of psychology, it seems to me, has a place, a very small place, and not the place that it has presumed to take and to be in the 20th century. Because the world of psychology is the world of the self, its states, its conditions, its relations, and that world is way too small to satisfy the human soul and what we were created for. In fact, I would say that uh, as a limit and as a focus, the therapeutic world is crushing to the spirit and killing to the soul because of how small and restricted and constrained it is. And yet it has been the preoccupation of the 20th century these many decades now because the soul was made for something infinitely bigger than self. It was made for God, who is infinite. Therefore, the endless preoccupation of the 20th century with the soul and its states, or with the psyche and its conditions and its self-regard and its esteem and its concepts of itself, is a killing preoccupation for the soul. It is a shriveling, shrinking preoccupation for the soul, all the while in the name of health. Let me read you a uh, quote that really hit the nail on the head. I don't know if you're familiar with the magazine First Things here in Toronto, but... um, William Kilpatrick wrote this article, Faith and Therapy, in the three issues ago, I think it was, and uh, closed like this. The 20th century has seen many attacks on Christianity, but the frontal attacks of militant atheists, Marxists, Nazis, have not resulted in as much lost ground for Christians as the more insidious attacks of the therapeutic culture. The sense of guilt, the sense of sin, the sense of the sacred, the sense that there is another order of authority by which we are judged, these have not disappeared entirely from the Christian culture, but they have been eroded. If this is difficult to see, it is because of the fog that the culture of therapy emits, an empathic fog which surrounds us and confuses us and prevents us from seeing life clearly. We wander about in this fog thinking our enemy is our friend because he is so exquisitely concerned with our health. The only thing powerful enough to cut through this fog is the light of revelation. Revelation reminds us that physical and emotional health is not the alpha and omega of existence. The Gospels tell us that if our hand offends us, we should cut it off, it being better to enter into life maimed than having our two hands and go to hell. Likewise, it may be better to enter the kingdom of heaven with a repressed psyche than to enter the other place brimming with self-assertiveness. 
There is no ultimate consolation to be found in the theories propounded by psychologists. And the word is ultimate there. No ultimate consolation. Psychology is of very little help to the majority of the suffering people in this world. Take your typical self-help book and carry it with you to southern Sudan. And see how much use it will be. And it has absolutely nothing to say to the fact that all of us must die one day. The most tragic thing in Minneapolis to me is when a seminary student at our church does a temporary apprenticeship at a hospital under a Jungian, a Jungian psychologist who happened to be the, the uh, chaplain at Hennepin County Hospital. Dealing with dying people. And I tell you, if you want to see the vacuousness of a theory, see what it says to a man who has a week to live in a hospice. And he will not let our young men talk about Christ. Your job is to help them get in touch with their feelings while they die. That's wicked. That is wicked. The therapeutic culture's well-adjusted person, for all his serene sense of self, has an overwhelming problem. He is blinded to the beatific vision. Okay. Now, I haven't given you my theory yet the relationship between the 20th and 21st century. I'm just setting the stage for how I see the 20th century. The 20th century is consumed with self and blind to God. If God exists, it's a teeny little speck to deal with in service of the self. I don't think even our idolatries can stand this for another century. Because the the human soul is made for something bigger than the self, is made for God, and therefore, if it's going to be an idol maker, an idol maker, it's got to make a new one. It cannot last for another century. We must have some new idols, and I think that they will be physics and astronomy. There's my theory. <laughs> For what it's worth, I think that the world of physics and astronomy will begin to usurp the place of psychotherapy in various and sundry forms to our good. If one idolatry is better than another, I think the bigger your idol can be, the better. Because at least you are bearing witness to the fact that your soul was made for something absolutely huge. Not what you see in the mirror. Believe me, not what you see in the mirror. And the soul knows that it was not made for itself. And therefore the complete consuming passion of the 20th century to deal with self as that which will be our portion has got to give way. We must have new idols. In the 21st century. And so I watch. I'm watching. 
I'm cutting our articles as they come. So I bring them with me. And here's one from George Will. Now, George Will, I do believe, is a believer, probably Catholic believer. But he's reporting here on the, the gospel from science, namely from the Hubble telescope. What is the Hubble preaching these days? And it is preaching a different message than psychology. This is this paragraph. The Hubble recently sent back to Earth to this strangely lush speck in one of perhaps 50 billion galaxies. Now, before Hubble, they were guessing perhaps a million or maybe 10 million. Now they're talking 50 billion galaxies. Infrared images of the faintest, most distant galaxies ever seen. They could be more than... Now, enlarge your psyche for this one. They could be more than 12 billion light years away. That's 12 billion times 6 trillion miles the Hubble telescope is picking up infrared images of galaxies away. That's almost enough to make you bow down. I was driving in Minneapolis after taking my son to work at 545 Tuesday morning. Was that yesterday? I don't know. What is today? Yes, that was yesterday morning. And uh, as I was driving into town, the sun, I'd never driven east on 394 at 6 a.m. And the sun lipped up over one of the downtown hotels between two skyscrapers and filled the entire space and blinded me. I had to pull down the visor. And I thought to myself, did I not know the maker? I would pull off to the side and get on my knees. It is not hard for me to understand false worship. And we're going to have lots of it. And it isn't going to be psychology in the 21st century. There's my little theory that is probably totally wrong. And nothing I say depends on it. A furious dying star. Why why did you get a whole page in the Minneapolis Tribune? Eta Carinae. The biggest, strangest object in our little, little galaxy, which is a hundred million light years across one of 50 billion galaxies in the universe, perhaps. Who knows? Five million times brighter than the sun. Etakirine, the star. You can see it. You go out at night, one of 6,000 stars that you can see. Now, I think we were made for God. Our souls were made to know and embrace and enjoy and trust and get ourselves around, if you can imagine it, or at least get ourselves expanding up into God, to know him. And what the substitutes are, are always Inadequate, whether it's the self or whether it's 50 billion galaxies. Now, what's this got to do with preaching? Everything. It's got everything to do with preaching. 
It came home to me a few years ago when I read this quote about Albert Einstein. That's why I called this message an answer to Albert Einstein. It was written by uh, Charles Meisner, a scientific uh, relativity theorist, expert. He said, I do see the design of the universe as essentially a religious question. That is, one should have some kind of respect and awe for the whole business. It's very magnificent and shouldn't be taken for granted. In fact, I believe that is why Einstein had so little use for organized religion. Although he strikes me as a basically very religious man. And this this sentence leaped off the page to me as a preacher. Einstein must have looked at what the preachers said about God and felt they were blaspheming. He had seen much more majesty than they had ever imagined. And they were just not talking about the real thing. I don't think I've ever read anything in the last, say, I don't know, eight to ten years that more fired me for why I do what I do. Our mission statement at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis is we exist to spread a passion for the supremacy of God in all things for the joy of all peoples. That's my life mission. I exist to spread a passion for the supremacy of God over the galaxies, over the self, over Einstein, over theories, over schools, over cultures, over history, over time. That's my passion. That's my life. I exist to spread a passion for the supremacy of God over all his substitutes in the universe. For the sake of the joy of the nations forever. And everywhere I go, I've been asking this question in the last maybe two years. This is my kind of awakening question. I ask, does anybody go? Now, I'm in Canada. I shouldn't use American bright spot, but I don't know Canadian geography well enough to substitute. So. Forgive. Does anybody go to the Grand Canyon to enhance their self-esteem? And if not, why do they go? I mean, self-esteem is the only way to health, right? I mean, that's, that's religion in America. At least the U.S., That's in every textbook, it's in every class, it's in almost every pulpit. Self-esteem is the answer to all crime. It's the answer to all shortcomings in families. It's the answer to every kid's problem. So if it is the answer and the be-all and the end-all, what drives people to the Grand Canyon? We're standing on the lip of it. You do not feel a sense that your self is being enhanced here. And the answer is very simple. 
The self was made to esteem God. And this is as close as you can get on the planet in a valley. This is big. And when you stand on the edge of it, your soul does not say, Oh, give me a mirror. Give me a mirror. Your soul says, And there's something about that mammothness. It drops a mile. It extends a mile. And you stand on the edge of it and and everything in you without any self-awareness just expands out to get your arms around it. And it does the healing. It does the healing of the moment. So many petty little things in your life vanish on the edge of the Grand Canyon. It's all a parable. This is the parable about God. And therefore, Einstein, he'd go to church. He died in 1955. If this was true in 55, think, think what he would say today. When he goes to hear preaching, what does he hear? Practical how-tos, psychological soothing, relational therapy, little help, little, little help there, help you get along at work, help you get along with the wife, husband, help you with your rambunctious and ornery teenagers, help you with this, help you with that. And we all feel good now, a little bit of help, go out, get by with another week because we've got a little more help today. And Einstein walks out and says, I saw a million galaxies last night. I came here to hear somebody tell me about some reality bigger, greater, more glorious, more wonderful, more awesome than that. And what did I hear? Thank you. I don't need to go to church to hear this. I get this everywhere. That's where I'll end up this morning is if preachers won't tell us more than that, where are they going to go? Where are the people going to go? Listen to this word from Isaiah chapter 40. You need a place to go to have your heart expanded. Go to Isaiah 40. To whom then will you compare me, says the Lord, that I should be like him? says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these stars. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might. And because he is strong in power, not one of them is missing. Now, Isaiah was also impressed, like Einstein was, with what he saw when he looked up. Only he drew a different conclusion. He said, God draws them all into existence, numbers them, and names them. Just imagine it. And we're talking billions of stars in our galaxy. We're talking 50 billion galaxies. One of the stars, five million times brighter than the sun, which travels around the galaxy at 155 miles a second and will complete its first revolution in 200 million years. And God has a name for every one of them. 
Mary, Joe, you go here, you go there, you stay in existence, you go out of existence, you explode. The reason for names is so you can communicate, right? I mean, what are names? Names imply significance, and they're designated by the one who names, and then you can bid them to do what they should do. Now, that's our God, and he should get more on Sunday morning than he gets. He should be supreme in our preaching differently than he is. Einstein said the preachers are simply blaspheming. I don't want to blaspheme in the pulpit. I don't want anybody to write on my epitaph, he blasphemed in the pulpit. He was not talking about the real thing. He'd never seen it. He'd never tasted it. He'd never soared with it. He'd never been caught up into it. He'd never been drawn out by it. He had no taste for the majesty and for the glory. He just did what every other self-help book was doing in his culture. I don't want that on my tombstone. So let me take uh, the minutes we have left here and talk about why I think God should be supreme in preaching and then how he should be supreme in preaching. And we can't do much with this, but we'll do what we can in these last minutes. Why? Very simple. I had a phone call. I forget. Right after I wrote the, the, the book, the little teeny orange book on preaching, got a call from Christianity Today, and then we'll do an interview on the supremacy of God in preaching. The first question they asked was, um, Pastor John, why do you think God should be supreme in preaching? And and the first answer that came to my mind was, because God is supreme to God. And if God is supreme to God, God should be supreme to me. Because who am I to elevate something else to supreme when God considers God supreme? And I don't think that hits home to people as much as it ought to. Listen to Isaiah 48, 9. For my name's sake, I defer my anger. I'm going to hold my hand up here and count these God-exalting self-acclamations. For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not like silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. Six hammer blows of divine self-exaltation. Now, who am I? To hear God esteeming God like that and esteem anything else. My glory I will not give to another. That's God's opinion about God. And so I'm going to stand up in my preaching and do less in my assessment of God than God's assessment of God? That was my first answer to them. And and they said, what? <laughs> we got that. 
This is very, very important. It's important for the nations. Oh, how important for the nations this is, which is why I wrote that little green book. I don't know. I can't remember the titles of my books. One is orange and one is green. (laughs) This little green book. I think the subtitle is The Supremacy of God in Missions. Because over and over again, don't we read in the Psalms, declare his glory among the nations, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord and bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his what among the nations? His glory among the nations. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are idols. How are you going to do missions if you don't feel that? How are you going to do missions? Or do you do missions? Is your church aflame for the nations? Declare his glory among the nations because great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. Meaning, I know all the nations are in Toronto. I know that. But they have access now. At least proximity access, if not cultural access. But there are people groups still, depending on how you read the data, In the 82,000 movement of the Joshua Project, there are peoples utterly, totally outside the access of the gospel. And the Bible says, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. Ten thousand times more greatly to be praised than can be praised in Toronto with all of your glorious diversity. And so if you don't feel this, that God is magnificent and what drives mission and preaching and worship, to that I say, Amen. Amen. Oh, for more tears for the perishing. But that won't carry the day. Because if you arrive in the presence of the perishing and they have one hour to live after having their hands and legs cut off, what are you going to tell them? You're going to tell them to die is gain. If you know Jesus, and they say, what do you mean gain? I'm leaving my wife. I'm leaving my children. I gave my all. And you say, or you don't say, God is worth everything. And if you have an hour, half an hour with them, you talk to them about what? Their self? Their family? How sweet it was to be here these 35 years? No! You fill their dying soul with Christ. And how glorious it will be to see Him in 25 minutes. And if you don't feed it, what are you going to say? I just think the biggest thing in all the world is to see the greatness of Christ. We talk salvation. And we use the word so glibly. As though forgiveness of sins and uh, having a life of peace and love and joy here is kind of salvation. It's not the main thing. The main thing is that when my sins are taken away and the righteousness of Christ is imputed to me, I have access to spiritually now and personally later the most glorious all-satisfying being 
that ever was, ever is, or ever will be. That's salvation. And if he will not be satisfying to my soul in personal face-to-face fellowship with him, nothing will. Nothing. And therefore what we need to do as pastors and lay people is devote ourselves mainly to knowing him. And then exalting him in our preaching. So he is he is preeminent and supreme in our preaching because he's preeminent and supreme to himself. He establishes what is supreme. Now let me ask this, this last question here. How do we go about this? How do we do this? And I think maybe the best thing I can do here is just quickly in the last... Uh, five or six minutes, walk you through a sermon from Acts, Acts chapter uh, 13. And I want to model for you um, a sermon by just drawing your attention to the way Paul, in Antioch of Pisidia, standing up, preaching to both a few believers, perhaps, mainly unbelievers, talks about Reality. And it's God. So let's start at, if you want to look at it in your Bible as we go, Acts 13, starting at verse 17. And I'm just going to walk through the next 20 verses or so, pointing out the centrality and supremacy of God and a few things along the way that make it remarkable. And just leave you then with that sermon ringing in your ears to say, do I do anything like that? Does the flavor of this sermon, not necessarily the style, we don't need to preach in Paul's style, but the flavor and the dynamic and the impulse of this sermon make its way into our preaching. Verse 17. It was God, that's what I'm going to underline every verse. It was God who chose Israel from all the people's of the earth. So he's going to rehearse redemptive history now. And he rehearses it in a way that is stunning in its God-centeredness. It was God who chose Israel. Then in the middle of verse 17, it was God who made the people great during their stay in Egypt. They, they weren't just naturally fertile people. It says God increased them and made them great, made them grow. End of verse 17. God led them out of Egypt with an uplifted arm. Why does he say that? With an uplifted arm. Because God is flexing his muscles in Egypt. Did you ever ask why there were ten plagues and not two, three, four, five, six? Why not stop at six, for goodness sakes? Seven. Why seven? Why not eight? Why not nine? Why ten? Answer. Accept this. God is a show off. I say it with reverence. Only one being in the universe has a right to be a show-off. One. You don't. He does. You just read the text. Read chapters 4 through 14. And that will not be an overstatement. He made sport of Pharaoh, it says, chapter 14. In order to demonstrate his power for the sake of Rahab and her conversion. Verse 18, God bore with Israel in the wilderness. He carried Israel like a father carries his children. Verse 19, first half of the verse, 
It was God who destroyed the seven nations in the land of Canaan. They were his and he had the right to do with him what he pleased. The horses made ready for the day of battle. We know the Jews swung the sword. Yes, yes, yes. But the horses made ready for the day of battle and victory belongs to the Lord. The Lord did it. Verse 19 says, and then the last half of verse 19, it was God who gave Israel the land. It was his to give and he gave it. The earth is the Lord's, the fullness thereof. He gives it to whomever he pleases. Verse 20, it was God who gave Israel judges. Verse 21, it was God who gave Israel her first king. Verse 22, it was God who removed the first king, Saul. It's like Daniel says, he sets up kings, he puts kings down. Milosevic is not an accident. Neither is Clinton still being in office, which he shouldn't be. Those are not accidents. The Lord puts up kings. He puts them down. He has his timing. They will get their day. Sooner or later, their foot will slip. That's what the verse says. God removed Saul. Verse 22. At the end, God raised up David. Little nobody plays a harp, uses a slingshot, writes songs. That's my man. He will be king. Verse 23. God brought to Israel a savior, Jesus. God brought him. This is no impersonal force working here. God brings him. And now. Verses 24 and 25. John the Baptist. I am not he. No. But after me, one is coming. The sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Jesus said, no prophet was greater than John, yet John couldn't untie his feet or untie his shoes. And so it goes on through to the end. Perhaps that's enough to give you a flavor. There's some more remarkable things in that sermon. Um, namely, things like these people not knowing what was written fulfilled what he promised. As though to say, they didn't cooperate with God to get it done. God got it done through them because they didn't know what was written about what they were about to do. So I just draw this time this morning to a close by pleading with you to reckon with the supremacy of God in your preaching. Don't let Albert Einstein have the last say in your life and say they were blaspheming. Don't let them have, don't let him have the last say to say, the preachers didn't really know what they were talking about. Lift up God. Lift up everything. Yes, deal with children. Let's deal with divorce. Yes, deal with drugs. Yes, deal with the pain of loss. Yes, deal with every kind of brokenness in your church. But deal with in a way that lifts people up into God. So that they get a perspective on that that nobody else gives them. No newspaper gives them. No psychologist gives them. Nobody gives them but a God-saturated pastor who's riveted on and ravished by the glory of God. Let's pray. Lord, as we, as we take hold of these great things, help us, I pray. We want so bad, oh Lord, to be with you. In this, we want to join your passion for your supremacy. So help us, I pray. In Jesus' name.